Today's scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 32. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are so faithful, that you are so good, that in spite of even in our faithfulness, in spite of our failures, in spite of our inconsistencies, our incompetency, our inadequacy, you are the God who still summons faithfully your people to come and take delight in you, to worship you, to be refreshed, to be strengthened, to be empowered once again, to be assured once more of how deep and wide, long, And how profound your love is for us. So, Father, we ask once again that you would assure us of these things, strengthen our resolve in our commitment of being your ambassadors in this world. And, Lord, we pray that you would equip us with the wisdom of the word, the word that gives life, the word that gives grace, the word that gives us everything that we need to live life uh, with the hope of the gospel. Lord, would you now bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, it's been kind of said that if you want to figure out the main gist of a book without having to read the whole thing, uh, it's been said that you should just read the first couple chapters at the beginning and the last few chapters at the end, and then you should be able to extrapolate what the main concept or what the main idea of that book is about. I don't necessarily recommend you college students to do that, but I've heard that. I don't know if it really works. But maybe it does. But here's what's so interesting. If you applied that method to the Bible, if you just decided, you know what, I don't know if I can read this whole thing. I'm just going to read the first couple chapters and the last few chapters of the Bible. You discover something very interesting. You discover that the Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. Now, just from that fact itself, you can extrapolate that marriage must be very important in the Bible and therefore must be very important to God. You would be right to make that conclusion. And yet, that is something that is not something we recognize, especially for those of us who grew up going to church. Because for most of us who grew up going to church, especially churches like this, or many churches in America for that fact, marriage is not a topic that we frequently hear about 
in the pulpit, in the Sunday school, in our Bible studies. Marriage is simply not a topic that comes out over and over and over again. Maybe it'll come out in a Bible study in a blue moon where all the, you know, lonely single people will just crowd up that space to go and, and see what the Bible says about marriage. But for the most part, we don't hear much about marriage at all, especially in the Korean church in terms of how the Bible understands it. And part of the reason why we see this minimization of marriage in the teachings of the church is because there's been a long tradition that has kind of tacitly looked down on marriage as kind of like an inferior state to live as a follower of Jesus. In other words, there's been kind of this mindset that's been around for centuries in the church that if you choose to get married, that you are somehow compromising or you're not as committed to God and his agenda and his mission in the world. For example, Thomas Aquinas, considered one of the best theologians that the church has ever created, once said this about marriage, quote, Married sex, even though it's adorned with all the honorableness of marriage, carries with it a certain shame. Now, virginity is defined by a moral integrity. Without a doubt, then, the state of virginity is preferable. According to Aquinas, even though on one hand he says that there's an honorableness to marriage, and yet in the next breath he says, yet something that's irrefutably connected to marriage, which is sex, right, has a certain shame to it. And therefore, if you want to be committed to Jesus, if you really want to be the upper echelon of faithfulness to God, then you should forego marriage, which is what he's referring to, to this idea of perpetual virginity. And, of course, we see this mindset still going on today in the Catholic Church. If you are part of the Catholic Church and you aspire to have a prominent role of leadership and recognition in the Catholic Church, such as a nun or a priest, you have to give up the desire for marriage. You have to take on a vow of celibacy because you don't want to be distracted with earthly things. You don't want to be consumed with things that concern the things of man. You want to be only concerned about the things of God, creating a subtext message that if you choose to marry, you're not as committed, you're not as devoted, you're not as loyal to God as you would otherwise. We're continuing our sermon series entitled METS, M-E-T-S, which stands for Members Equipped to serve. And the purpose of this series is to look at the various ministries that God calls every Christian to serve as a minister. We said in this series that it's not only pastors like myself and Pastor James who are, quote, unquote, the ministers of God. No, the Bible teaches us that every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus is a minister of God. Everyone is called to serve in ministry. Everyone is called, in a sense, to be like a pastor. Okay? And today we come to the third ministry that God calls every Christian to serve as a minister in, which is our ministry to our families. Our ministry to our families. Today and the next couple of weeks, we're going to sit on this third category. And today, the Apostle Paul is going to teach us in Ephesians 5 one aspect to our ministry to our families, and that is our ministry to our marriages. Okay? Now, before I go on, let me just qualify all this by saying this. I know that for many of you, Unlike the first service, most of you are not married. Most of you are single. We have a couple exceptions here and there. But for the most part, I know this is a young congregation and therefore predominantly made up of single people who are yet to be married. And you may be tempted to think that this message is not relevant to you, that this message is not something that's worth your listening to right now. But if you would think that way, I would challenge you not to think that way at all for two reasons. Number one, even though you're not married now, chances are there's a high probability you are going to get married. At least many of you, I would hope, want to get married. If you have sexual desire, if you know that you have sexual desire within you and you have an insatiable desire to have this desire met, 
right? That means your call to marriage. You know, sexual desire, according to the Bible, is simply the physical desire for marriage. Sexual desire is simply a physical desire for marriage. And if you feel that desire, and if you want to have this desire fulfilled, then yes, you should study. You should understand what it takes to have a successful marriage. I mean, many of you guys are studying to be great lawyers, great doctors, great business professionals. What are you doing now? You're studying for it, even though you're not yet a doctor, not yet a business person, not yet a lawyer. Why? Because you want to prepare for it. You know that to study now helps you in the long run to be successful in your ultimate goal. If you want to have a great marriage, if you want to be a good husband, a good wife, it's time to study now, even though you're not yet married yet. So it is beneficial to understand what Scripture says, even though you're not yet married. But what about those of you who feel genuinely called to never get married? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you're one of those very few people who feel called to a life of celibacy. Surely, is this message relevant to you? I would say yes. Because even if... For argument's sake, God calls you to a perpetual life of celibacy. Nevertheless, there are people around you, people that you love, people that you serve alongside, people who you are called to bless and encourage, who will get married, and maybe they'll come to you in moments of discouragement, in moments of despair with their marriages, and they would need a brother or sister who's well-informed in the biblical understanding of marriage so that you could be a source of wisdom and encouragement to them. So really, this message is for everyone, for those who are married, those who want to get married, those who never feel called to be married. This message is relevant to all of us, and therefore, it's a message we should be fully attentive to today. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this afternoon. First, I want to talk about the wife's ministry in her marriage. Then I want to talk about the husband's ministry in his marriage. And then finally, I want to end it with Jesus' ministry in the marriage. The wife's ministry in her marriage, the husband's ministry in his marriage, And finally, I'm going to end it with Jesus' ministry in the marriage. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, the wife's ministry in her marriage. Starting in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes these words. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, right about now, I'm probably taking an educational guess that the majority of women here, if not all of you in here, women have just felt a cold chill running down your spine as I just read those words to you, right? You're probably very uncomfortable as you hear the Bible say, woman, submit to your man, right? You're very uncomfortable right now as you hear these words coming out of my mouth. And conversely, some of you men are a little bit too comfortable with some of the words that Paul is saying. Shame on you for feeling that way. Because on the surface level, this just sounds very, very offensive. It sounds even scandalous. And if you're here investigating Christianity, you may be tempted to think, yes, I knew it. I knew this Christianity is what they say it is. It's a religion that is so oppressive of women. It's so patriarchal. It's made up of chauvinist pigs. You know, it's, it's a religion that seeks to just, you know, take down the woman. It's all about, like, men, 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 men. Right? And indeed... If you did some cultural background study around the time when Paul wrote this letter, it would seem that, yes, maybe Paul is perpetuating this low view of women that was so predominant around his time. In his book, Women in Antiquity, Cambridge scholar Charles Seltman writes about how women were seen back in the day. He says this, a girl was completely under her father's and a wife completely under her husband's power. She was his chattel. Her life was one of legal incapacity which amounted to enslavement, while her status was described as imbecilitis, hence our word imbecile. 
In the days of the Roman Empire, Roman, excuse me, in the days of the Roman Empire, women were not treated as people, they were treated like property. And in the Jewish worldview, in the days of the Hebrew culture back then, women did not fare any better. One very popular morning prayer that Jewish men would pray every single morning started off like this. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. (laughs) It's kind of interesting how woman comes at the very last of that prayer, right? And when you consider that Paul was both a Jew and a Roman citizen, you cannot help but to think, of course, Paul must be a chauvinistic patriarchal pig. It's being seen right here as he writes out these very words in Ephesians 5. But before you come to that conclusion, I'd like for you to reread carefully what he says in our passage, starting in verse 22. Listen again to what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, wives, submit to your husband because he is your Lord. But he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Who is the Lord that Paul is referring to there? Well, the context is very clear. Whenever Paul is using this phrase, the Lord, he's always referring to who? Jesus. He's referring to God. Okay, we got that out of the way, but what does that phrase actually mean, as to the Lord? What is that phrase all about? What does it mean to submit to your husbands, wives, as to the Lord? Well, I like how one Bible scholar by the name of Brian Chappell, how he explains it. Listen to what he says. He says this, quote, This phrase, as to the Lord, does not mean that a wife should treat her husband as though he were God. We are not to make idols of anything or anyone. Rather, the words indicate that a woman's submission is motivated not so much by a husband's deserving it as by love for God's purpose. In other words, according to Chapel, when a wife submits to her husband, she does so because she wants God's purpose for her husband to come to pass. When a wife submits to her husband, she wants God's purpose for her husband to come to pass. Here's the question. What is God's purpose for a husband in a marriage? What is God's desire? What is God's plan? What is God's will for the husband in the marriage? Well, it tells us right in verse 23. What does Paul say? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Paul tells us that God's purpose, God's will for the husband in his marriage is to be the head of his wife, or some translation puts it, to be the leader of his wife, to lead his wife. Now, that doesn't really take the sting out, does it, ladies? <laughs> it still sounds somewhat offensive, right? To have a husband lead me? Pastor, I have a PhD, I have an MD, I have a JD, what do you mean, right? My husband lead me. That just sounds so offensive. It just perpetuates this idea that you want the man to dominate, to be in control, to make all the decisions. But listen again carefully to what Paul says. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Paul says that God's will for the husband is to lead his wife as Christ leads the church. In other words, God wants the husband to follow the example of leadership that Jesus exhibits as he leads his kingdom. Here's the question. What kind of leadership model does Jesus exhibit as he rules his kingdom? What is Jesus' leadership style as he leads his people? Well, Jesus tells us in his own words in Luke 22. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus told them, his disciples, in this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? 
The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves, according to Jesus, the kind of leadership that he leads with in his kingdom and the kind of leadership that he wants his men to lead his family is the leadership of service. Where being a great leader in his eyes is one who goes out of his way to serve those around around him rather than demanding those around him to serve him. So putting all this together, what does this tell us? It tells us that a husband as the leader in his marriage or as the head of the marriage is principally a servant. He leads his wife as a servant. Servant of who, though? Who's servant? If the husband is to lead his wife as a servant, who is he the servant of? I mean, it can't be the wife because she's the one submitting to him, right? So who is he serving as he is leading his wife? It's God, right? He is to serve God as he leads his wife. He is God's servant. And ladies, this is why your husband now or your future husband needs you to submit to him. You heard me right. I didn't say he wants you to. He needs you. He needs you to submit to him. Because by submitting to your husband, you are essentially communicating to him through that act of submission that he is called to be a servant. Specifically, God's servant. Not your servant, but God's servant. Let me say that again. When you submit to your husband, you are communicating through that act of submission to your husband that he is called to be a servant. Not your servant, but God's servant. Now, I know some of you ladies are like, well, I don't know about that. I actually would like, like my husband to be my servant instead. But let me be clear on something. It's actually to your benefit, much greater benefit if he was serving God rather than serving you in your marriage. Why? Well, let me read you a very insightful quote from Gary Thomas. This is from his amazing book, Sacred Marriage. Uh, for those of you who plan to get married, I encourage you to get a copy and read it. But listen to what he says. Quote, once I became a father, I realized that Lisa isn't just my wife. She's also God's daughter, and I was to treat her accordingly. If you want to get on my good side, just be good to one of my kids. Conversely, if you really want to make me angry, pick on one of my kids. When I realized I am married to God's daughter, everything about how I viewed marriage changed. God feels about my wife, his daughter, in an even holier and more passionate way than I feel about my own daughter's. You know, we often reflect on the fatherhood of God, which is a foundational Christian doctrine. But if we want to change our marriages, men, let's spend some time thinking about God as father-in-law. Because when you marry a Christian woman, that is what he becomes. When I fail to respect my wife, when I demean her or am condescending towards her or mistreat her in any way, I am courting trouble with the heavenly father who feels passionately about my spouse's welfare, a spouse who just happens to be his precious child. Ladies, hear me when I say this. Submitting to your husband is not letting your husband do whatever he wants to do. Submitting to your husband is not letting him get his way where he makes all the decisions and you just stand off quietly in the corner and passively accepting every decision he makes, even though you know it's a stupid decision. That is not submission. Like if your husband says, you know what, honey, I think we should just go to Las Vegas and gamble all of our life savings because I know I can double it. Biblical submission shouldn't be yes, dear, right? Biblical submission might be like, no, (laughs) right? Biblical submission has a goal. It has a specific goal. And if you're not hitting this goal, then you have to change how you submit. 
Think of it this way. If a doctor treats a patient with medicine, but the medicine isn't working, clearly you have to think of another way to treat the patient, right? You don't just keep treating with the same medicine that isn't working. Women are called to submit, but if your submission is not leading him to properly submit to God, you need to change what you're doing. You still need to submit, but you can't keep doing what you have been doing if it's making him into a knucklehead. Because biblical submission has a goal. And that goal is to enable your husband to be a servant of God that will be manifest primarily in how he treats you, which is a precious daughter of God. When you're submitting to your husband, you're not giving him license to bully you around. You're not giving him the opportunity to become a self-centered, pompous jerk. Rather, you are reminding him, maybe even warning him, Hey, I'm about to submit to you, so you better be careful how you rule, how you lead. Because if you get this wrong, my father will have something to say to you. And his power, his wrath is far more dangerous than what you could ever get to me. You know what they say, hell hath no fury than a scorned woman. That's actually not true. Hell hath no fury than a scorned father in heaven who sees his daughter being mistreated by a knucklehead who does not know what biblical submission is. Biblical submission is the ministry that a wife gives to her husband so that he could take that as an opportunity to express his devotion to God, his fear of God, his loyalty to God, and his commitment to God to care for his children, starting with God's daughter, his wife. That's why we need for you to submit to us, wives, So that we could have the opportunity to show that we are committed, not just to you, but to your Father in heaven. By the way that we treat you and honor you and are committed to you and are loyal to you and are faithful to you. So really, when a woman submits to her husband, that's not because God sees women as being inferior. Quite the opposite. It's because she is so precious that she submits because it reflects God's heart for her to where dares a man to treat her any different at the cost of God's wrath being upon him. Women, this is your ministry to us as husbands. This is how you serve us. By your submission, you're reminding us that we are not lords, but we are servants of God. So that's the first point. Let's move on to the next point where we talk about the husband's ministry to his wife, which is my next point. Let's read again verse 25 through 29. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having her cleansed by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, there's so much here that we can talk about, and we don't want to miss any of it, right? So let's look at it piece by piece so we can get the fullness of what Paul is saying here. Uh, Paul starts off by telling husbands that they're to, quote, love their wives, right? Verse 25. Now, when you hear this, you're probably thinking to yourself, this is so stupid, Paul. (laughs) I mean, duh, isn't this obvious? Yes, husband, we're supposed to love our wives. That's That's kind of like an unnecessary statement you just made. Isn't this something every man knows? I mean, how many men do you know marry women that they're not madly in love with who they don't love? 
Right? And I'm sure there are some cases where men marry for other reasons, other ulterior motives. But for the most part, in general, in our society today at least, most men today marry the women they marry because they love them. They deeply love them. But before you kind of dismiss Paul as kind of like a little fool for stating the obvious, listen again to what he says right after he says, husband, love your wives. What do he say? Love your wives as what? Christ loved the church. Paul is specifically describing, he's qualifying the nature of a husband's love. And so the question is, what kind of love is this? What is a husband's love to his wife? What's so unique about it? What's so different from any other forms of love? What is a husband's love? Well, Paul tells us in verse 26 to 27. First of all, he says it's a love that cleanses her. It's a love that removes spots and wrinkles and leaves her without blemish. Isn't it interesting how Paul describes a husband's love like you would describe makeup? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that the same words that are used in this passage are the same exact word that cosmetic companies use to describe their products for makeup for women? There's the cleanser. There's the wrinkle cream. There's the spot remover. There's the blemish, you know, remover. Why is Paul describing a husband's love like you would describe makeup today? Well, think about it. What's the purpose of makeup? What's the purpose of cosmetic? Isn't it to get rid of the flaws and imperfections so that the human beauty that's within a woman can finally shine through, right? The hidden beauty that's been covered over and marred over pimples and zits and sunspots and all that stuff. Isn't that what makeup is to do? It's to bring out the latent potential beauty in a woman so that it can come out, right? That right there is what a husband's love is supposed to do. A husband is to love his wife in such a way that the love covers over all of her flaws, all of her imperfections, all of her issues, all of her insecurities, so that the potential beauty that is latent within her can finally come out. That is what a husband's love is. And you single men in here, you really need to understand this. Because let's be honest, brothers, when most of you guys fantasize the kind of woman that you hope to be with the rest of your life, when you fantasize the kind of woman you're going to marry, let's be honest, you fantasize about a woman that you want to love but not in the way of a husband. Because you think about a woman that you can love who has no flaws, physical or character flaws, no issues, no personalities, differences, no, no insecurities, right? Which means you want to love a woman, but you don't love her like the way a husband should love his wife. Why? Don't take this the wrong way, guys. I'll tell you why. It's because you're lazy and weak. That's why. That sting? Sure. You want to hear it again? You're lazy and you're weak. I don't care if you can bench 250. I don't care if you're a grandmaster of jujitsu, you know, Gracie jujitsu, whatever. If you are only attracted to and only want to pursue people who you find flawless and imperfect, like perfect and, and, and spectacular, you don't want to love a woman the way a husband loves a woman. Whatever love you think that is, that's not a husband's love, Okay. But let me address you husbands in here, the small minute of you that are in here right now. Husbands, you listening? I think I married most of you guys. Husbands, if your attraction to your wife and hence your affection for her is diminishing because she doesn't look how she did when you start dating her, 
or because there are certain things about her personality that just annoy the heck out of you that you didn't even realize she was like until after you put on the ring and it's causing you to resent her and distance yourself from her. Yes, you may be that woman's husband, but you are not loving her as her husband. You're not. A husband's love is a love that is capable of looking beyond the initial flaws and imperfections of his wife, and instead he can see an inner beauty that he can bring out by his kindness towards her, his graciousness towards her, his forgiveness towards her, his hopefulness towards her in spite of days when she feels like a loser and a failure. In other words, a husband's love is a visionary love. He sees what his wife truly is by recognizing what she is capable of becoming. The most beautiful creature he's ever laid eyes on, which again he brings out by how he talks to her, how he cares for her, how he protects her even against himself, and how he puts her needs ahead of his own needs. Listen to how Tim Keller describes Christian love, and actually I think it's a perfect description of a husband's love. He says this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Within this Christian vision of marriage... Here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. That's a husband's love. Now, some of you brothers in here are probably going to push back, you know, because as men, we push each other, right? And you're probably going to push back. You know, Pastor John, I think you're just so naive. You're so idealistic with this nonsense talk of a husband's love. Oh, yeah, husband's love, husband's love. Let's be real, right? Let's be real, Pastor. I'm attracted to who I'm attracted to. I can't help it, right? I'm attracted to the girl who looks like she works out well. I'm attracted to that girl who's cool and laid back. I'm attracted to that girl, you know, who always seems to get along with everyone, doesn't like get into insecurities and is shy. I can't help it. And I am just too honest with myself to be dishonest to myself in that way or to be dishonest to that girl, right, who I'm not attracted to. I have too much integrity, Pastor John, to listen to what you're saying. So what do you have to say about that? Here's what I have to say about that. Verse 28. Look at what Paul says there. Verse 28. Where is it? Oh, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul is telling us something about a husband's love that makes it very unique than any other kind of love out there. A husband's love for his wife is a love that loves the wife at the same level of love that he loves himself. That's what he's saying right here, right? When you love your wife, you're loving her as you love yourself, right? As you love your own Body. In other words, you love your wife as your equal. The, the amount of love, the level of love that you have for her equals the love that you have for yourself. That's what a husband's love is. That's what makes it different from any other kind of quote-unquote love, if you call it that, is like, okay? So with that in mind, what does that imply these other loves implicitly see the other person as if it's not like a husband's love? It means you don't love that person as an equal, Right? And if you don't treat someone as your equal, if you don't see another person as your equal, you can only see them one of two ways. As someone who is better than you, higher than you, greater than you, or beneath you, inferior to you, right? Which of those two views do you think men will have 
if they follow this mindset of our culture. I'm just being honest. I'm just being a person of integrity. I'm only pursuing those people that I'm attracted to. Considering also what Paul says about the universal human nature, human psyche in verse 21. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Which is another way of saying we, we take care of ourselves pretty well. If we look at ourselves with a lot of love and we don't love a woman with a husband's love, which means we don't love that person as equal, but we prop ourselves up a lot, we cherish ourselves a lot, what's the natural conclusion of what a non-husband's love towards a woman would be? It would be to where you would see her as your inferior, right? Not as your greater, as less than you. And this is something that even psychiatry, psychology is publicly recognizing in his book, The centerfold syndrome, Dr. Gary Brooks down at Baylor University writes this. Quote, men are encouraged to always desire more and more desirable women. Sexual conquest is a way of validating masculinity. The more desirable the prey, the greater the conquest. The more sexually attractive the woman, the greater the sexual gratification. Once again, we see the hierarchical thinking so endemic to men's view of the world. What is he saying? He's simply saying this, you brothers who say, hey, I'm just being honest, I'm just being a person of integrity to only be attracted and pursue those people who seem perfect or flawless. He's saying, wrong, you're not doing it because you're being honest, not because of an issue of integrity. You're doing it because you want to conquer that girl. You want to prove to yourself that you're the man and that you can dominate and that you are better than the other gender. That's what you're doing. Isn't that ironic how the world will accuse Christianity of looking down on women, but yet the cultural's understanding of sexuality is the one that actually demeans the woman. It's all about conquering. It's all about about objectifying. It's all about saying, I won the gender wars, and I have triumphed over her. That's the world we live in. That is the subculture. That is the subtext, excuse me, of what our culture says about the relationships between husbands and wives, between men and women. Brothers and sisters, our ministry is to serve, and brothers in particular, your ministry to your wife, either your wife now or your future wife that you will meet one day, it's a ministry where you're called to love her in spite of her flaws, in spite of her insecurities, in spite of her incompetence, in spite of her inabilities, so that by your love for her, the beauty that is within her, the beauty that God is crafting through you starts emerging. And all the flaws, all the imperfections start to disappear. Kind of like those makeup tutorials you see on Facebook. You know, you ever see a girl like with a very hoarse, sorry, like a very unattractive face. Right? And then she starts putting all this stuff and by the end of it, like, whoa! That video is a perfect metaphor of what a husband love does throughout the lifetime of faithful marriage to his wife. That's what it does. Well, you're going to go on Facebook tonight and look for a video like that, right? Maybe I'll post one on on the church website. No, I won't do that. But that's what a husband love does. Now, I know some of you guys are thinking, oh, my gosh, Pastor John, I cannot do this. Right? All the brothers are like, this is crazy, Pastor How could I ever love a woman like this? And you women are still harping on what I said in my first book. Pastor, how could I submit to that dude sleeping next to me with horrid breath in the morning? Right? How can I do that? I can't. The answer to those questions leads us to the next point, the final point. Jesus' ministry in the marriage. Read again what he says in verse 31 to verse 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here Paul tells us that if you want to be able to do your ministry as a husband, if you want to do your ministry as the wife, if you want to find the power and the strength and the ability to do that ministry well, then you need to look to your other marriage. If you want to be a faithful minister as a husband, a faithful minister as a wife in your marriage, you have to find the strength and ability in your other marriage. Let me explain. Remember how I said in my introduction that the Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage? That marriage that ends the Bible, it's not an ordinary marriage. In fact, it's unlike any other marriage ever because it is the marriage, the final marriage, or the technical theological term is the eschatological marriage. Isn't that a word? Eschatological marriage. What a weird word. It's not a word that we recognize. It's not a familiar word. Eschatological. What does that mean? And yet if you keep saying that word over and over, eschatological, 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 all of a sudden, eschatological, a familiar word starts emerging out of that unfamiliar word. You guys hear the word sketch? In there? Eschatological. Sketch. Right? Sketch in the original Greek, skadia, literally means temporary. Temporary. So with that in mind, what's a sketch? Artists in here, sketch, you know what a sketch is? It's a temporary rough picture that is eventually going to be replaced by a final permanent picture, right? It's a visual rough draft that points to the finished ultimate product the non-sketched product, the ex-sketched product, the eschatological product. And when the Bible speaks of eschatological marriage, the eschatological marriage that ends all of history, it's speaking of the final marriage that all marriages in human history roughly sketched out and pointed to, which according to Paul is the marriage between Christ and the church, Christ and his people. Some marriages are better sketches than others, but nevertheless God created the institution of marriage in the beginning so that it would always point to, that it would always outline, that it would always reflect, however in a diminished state it would be in, to the ultimate final marriage, which is the marriage between Christ and the church. And Paul tells us in this passage that this final perfect marriage is made possible because of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God looked upon a sinful humanity made up of imperfect and flawed group of men and women and decided to look past these flaws, to look past these imperfections by dying on the cross, by submitting himself in utter humiliation in becoming a man, Jesus, so that he could suffer the penalty for all of our sins, all of our imperfections, all of our flaws as our substitute savior on the cross. So that in the end, he could end up with a bride who by nature is inferior to him, We are beneath God. We are creatures of God. He is the creator, and yet he would love us as we are his equals. Where Paul would even say later on in Ephesians that we are co-heirs with Christ. We are equal with Christ. That's the gospel. And it's the same gospel that compels men and women, husbands and wives, to do their respective ministries successfully and faithfully. Wives, future wives, You are able to submit. You will be able to submit to your flawed and imperfect husband because that's what your ultimate spouse did for you to have you. He submitted in humiliation to death so that he could have you as his own. Men, 
You can look past the flaws and imperfections of your wife and love her as your equal as you should because she is your equal. Why? Because your ultimate spouse, who isn't your equal, who's far greater than you, nevertheless treated you as his equal in his love for you. Don't you see? It's only in the gospel that our rough sketch of our marriage can actually become more and more like the final beautiful picture of the ultimate marriage that really all of creation is longing for. Brothers and sisters, do you know why your marriage is so important? Do you know why God, after he saved you, why he doesn't just send you, zap you into heaven, why he actually wants you to stay on earth and actually get married and have babies, right? It's because he wants your marriage to inform those who don't know yet Christ that the love they long for the marriage they wish they had, the marriage that is not able to be captured by Hollywood, by movies, by books, by poetry, is possible through the one who has perfect love for his spouse, through Jesus' love for the church. And that is the narrative that you can reenact in your marriage over and over, day to day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, before a watching world. Because I promise you, Regardless of what people say about their belief in God, regardless of what people say about the church, the fact of the matter is people want the love that God has for the church. They just don't know it. But you see it all the time in our culture. How can you not see that? That is what we are. We are prophets. We are messengers of God by the way we treat our spouses. That is our mission to bless the world through our marriage, by exhibiting the ultimate marriage, the great marriage, the marriage of hope. So here's my question to you. Let me address you single people folks first. Is this the kind of marriage that you think about? Is this the kind of vision that you have in terms of who you're going to marry? Is this the kind of mission that you feel burdened to live out as you fantasize about that day where you will finally meet her on the seven train on the way to work or to school? (laughs) Hearing Savage Garden in the background. Or Backstreet Boy. Okay, you guys are way too young for that. Taylor Swift or whoever you guys listen to today. Is your vision of marriage going to have a holy order to it? To where it doesn't just fit the mission of just enjoying each other, but it actually has the powerful benefit of blessing this world. A world that is so dark and so broken, filled with so many broken families, so many children, lost and alone, and as a result, come to think there is no love like this. That is your mission. And you have chosen to accept it when you received Christ. So my charge to you, brothers and sisters, as you get older, as you get to the point where you get closer and closer to that altar, my charge to you is look to the vision of the ultimate marriage. Look to Jesus' marriage, to his bride. So that through that vision, your marriage will not be rough, it will not be sketchy, but will become more like his. So it can have profound blessing to this world. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room. Father, many of them are yet to be married. Many of them are still young. Many of them are still preoccupied with other things that they are called to be responsible for. But yet, nevertheless, I pray that you would prepare them. I pray that you would enable them to have a vision of marriage that has much depth 
and much substance, unlike the way that Hollywood or the city tries to tell us marriage is supposed to be about. Instead, Father, protect our hearts from such savage perversion that seeks to rob us of the hope that we have in Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters that as they get closer and closer to that moment where you will bring their beloved into their lives, that they would be faithful and that they would take on the holy orders of the mission of marriage, the meaning of marriage, the hope of marriage. Father, I also pray for those among us in this room who are married. Maybe some of them are struggling now. Maybe some of them have been struggling for quite some time. Father, we know that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, which means you're also the author and perfecter of our marriages. Would you bless our husbands, that they would treat their wives not as inferior partners, but as beloved daughters of God, their father-in-law. And I pray that our women would entrust not their husbands, but entrust their heavenly father who will protect them as they submit to their husbands here. Father, help us to be a community that exhibits the kind of marriage that brings hope to the world rather than marriage that seeks to parasitically suck out the joy of, of this world. We ask that you would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.